So Money, Episode 25, Seth Godin. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We're going to change things up today. We're going to disrupt the So Money interview format for a special guest who is profoundly changing everything. The rules of business, leadership, entrepreneurship, and marketing. And I think after hearing what he has to say on this show in the next 30 minutes, I think that uh, this guest may even change or perhaps reconfirm the way you think about money. And that is a good thing. My guest is Seth Godin. Seth is the author of 17 books that have been bestsellers around the globe, and they've been translated into more than 35 languages. His newest book is called What to Do When It's Your Turn, and it's available at yourturn.link. You might also be familiar with his other books, The Icarus Deception, Lynchpin, Tribes, The Dip, and Purple Cow. Seth writes about the post-industrial revolution, the way ideas spread, marketing, quitting, leadership, and most of all, changing everything. In addition to his writing and speaking, Seth is the founder of Squidoo.com, a fast-growing, easy-to-use website, and his blog, SethGodin.com, is one of the most popular in the world. Before his work as a writer and blogger, Seth was vice president of direct marketing at Yahoo. And congratulations, Seth. In 2013, he was inducted into the Direct Marketing Hall of Fame, one of just three chosen for this honor. What we're going to learn today is what rich means to Seth. You'll want to hear this. How going to the edge in life gives you leverage. The resources beyond money that Seth thinks we can all take advantage of to live happier, more meaningful lives, and so much more. Seth actually took time to answer some of your questions submitted earlier from how to create financial stability as a freelancer to how to develop a business campaign that sticks in a world where there's just so much noise and so much competition. Here is Seth Godin. Seth, welcome to So Money. It's an honor and privilege, really, to be speaking with you. Thanks for spending time with me and our audience. Well, thanks for doing the work you do. It's really generous. Now, Seth, in preparation of our time together, I uh, I sent a note to my email list, to the folks on the So Money email list, and I I asked, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm interviewing Seth Godin. I'm a little nervous. What's your number one question that you might have for him about work or marketing, money? And I'm happy to say I got a lot of thoughtful questions, and some of those I'd like to visit later on in the interview, if that's okay. Sure. And But ahead of that, because this is a show about money and sharing our insights about how we think we should uh, lead our lives financially, what it means to be rich, what it means to have a meaningful, impactful life, I'd like to kick us off with your words, actually. I found this great quote in a book you published a few years ago entitled, We Are All Weird. I love that. And in it, you said, rich is my word for someone who can afford to make choices, who has enough resources to do more than merely survive. And 
I caught onto that quote, Seth, because specifically you use the word resources where some people might use the word money. You know, money, having enough money to do more than merely survive is rich. So what does rich really mean to you and why did you choose to use the word resources there? Well, thanks for uh, discovering that. I guess, I guess I would fill everyone in. I was inspired to write that after spending time uh, in India with some of the poorest people in the world. Uh, I work with the Acumen Fund, and uh, these are people who make uh, $3 a day on average. Their parents did the same. So did their grandparents and their great-grandparents. And what it means to be a subsistence farmer is to live right at the edge. Uh, the, the the hundreds of millions of people in India that I'm talking about in that sentence uh, have never been shopping once in their whole life. They have bought things to replace the things they have used up. But the idea of going to a store to say, I wonder what I should buy today, is completely alien. It's a pretty brand new idea on the planet Earth. And so when we talk about people who are rich... Uh, in our culture, we've decided that means you need a mansion and a yacht, mm-hmm. um, that, that rich is this sort of uh, ridiculous level of spending. But in fact, everyone who is listening to this is rich. Uh, rich to the uh, extent that they have a computer, uh, rich to the extent that they have the time to listen to a podcast, uh, that those two things all by themselves make us richer than anyone on earth dreamed of being 200 years ago. And money is a fairly new invention. Money uh, is this placeholder for barter. We used to say to somebody, I'll trade you this goat for that loaf of bread. And these sorts of exchanges person to person brought us closer together because you didn't know what the price of a thing was. It was about your relationship with someone and the exchange of goods Uh, meant that I respected your goods as much as you respected my goods. When we invented money, as Doug Rushkoff has written about, we first of all moved all the power out of the village to the central uh, authority that made the money. It also drove us apart, as Lewis Hyde has pointed out, because when someone, you know, loans you money to buy a house, you don't become friends with the banker. You're not close to the banker. You pay your interest. We're done. We're even Stephen. So we've invented all of this baggage around the idea of money and all of this baggage around the idea of being rich. And I think it's really important to get back to the first principle to say if you have resources, if you have the freedom to choose, Mm -hmm. if you have the ability to not just spend money but spend time and to create things that touch other people, you are rich and you ought to make some intentional decisions about what to do with that wealth. I love that. So it's not just money. It's having time. It's having creativity, vision, motivation to implement those ideas. So if you're listening, you're rich, and that's very inspiring, Seth. Thanks for sharing that with me. And you're right. We have made money very complicated, more complex than it really is. I had a listener actually write to me recently, and she asked me, Farnoosh, how do I how do I determine the value of my money? She was struggling with figuring out how to actually appropriate her hard-earned income, And she said, what sort of questions should I ask myself? And so I said, well, it helps for me at least to start with asking things like, who do I want to be? Who do I want to help? What do I want to change? What kind of lifestyle do I aspire to have? What might you offer to this person as well? As I think a lot of listeners, a lot of people are, are, are struggling with, how do I create a life for myself with the income that I have 
that is meaningful? How do I allocate my money in a meaningful way? Let's start with uh, thinking about the two edges of money. One edge is the way it makes you feel when you are almost out of money, the way it makes you feel when you are in debt, the way it makes you feel when you are on the edge. And then let's talk about the other extreme, which is how does it make you feel when you are stable, when you know you have enough, um, when there isn't someone you owe? Now, a lot of people live in between the two extremes, but we often find that interesting behaviors happen at the two edges, just like in physics. The, the edge of owing, a lot of people are hooked on. And so that's why uh, last year in the United States, we spent more money on self-storage units than we spent going to the movies. That's <laughs> uh, billions of dollars spent putting stuff we're not going to use in a f facility that costs a lot of money so we can have it for later when we won't use it then either. Why do people do that? Well, the, partly they do it is because they're getting closer to that edge of having too much, that edge of being in debt, that edge of more, more, more that marketers constantly push us toward. And I think that if you find yourself spending based on what's coming in as opposed to spending based on what makes you happy, uh, you are hooked on that cycle. And what I have always done as an entrepreneur, uh, because I've been allergic to the other field, to that feeling of it might all be over, is always made my expenses and the needs for the next project smaller than the resources that are available to me. So if you have a choice between uh, taking a car loan and buying a really nice car uh, or paying cash and buying a not nice car, I think you should buy a not nice car because you will end up happier in the long run than you will with the feeling that you have to incur every time you write that check that you can't afford for months on end, right? And that that one discipline puts you ahead of the eight ball as opposed to behind the eight ball for years and years to come. So that's the first piece of advice I give to everyone from the age of 12 on up, which is decide which part of your means make you happiest and live within that part of it. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, eating brown rice instead of going to a restaurant once a week, uh, skipping $5 worth of espresso every day, you add up a few of those and suddenly your 2000 or 3000 or $4,000 difference over the course of a year that money might be the difference between a good night's sleep and a bad night's sleep every night for a year. I agree. And, and also, I would just add that when you begin to practice a life where you're living below your means, within your means, you really start to appreciate your life a lot more. I mean, it sounds maybe like you won't because for some people, the idea of not having their latte or, or skipping on that nicer car sounds depressing. But the reality is, is that I think over the lifespan, you really do start to appreciate the little things more. And when you do go and have that espresso, you'll appreciate it more. So there is some something to be said about that. Now, Seth, uh, you know, you talked about living on the edge. You talked about a little bit, you know, the, the spectrum of living beyond your means, living below your means. You have talked about almost uh, entering bankruptcy at one point in your life, struggling for seven, eight years on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, you said you ate a lot of macaroni and cheese, and yet you also said you wouldn't trade it in for anything because you wouldn't be who you are now as a result of experiencing that, that phase in your life. So I have a few questions, if I may, about, about that stage in your life, and uh, not to get too personal, but 
uh, if you're comfortable sharing, how did you get there and how did you get yourself out of that situation? An entrepreneur, it, it's a tricky word. Um, famously, uh, some president said the French don't even have a word for entrepreneur. They're so bureaucratic. But <laughs> the, uh, the word entrepreneur could mean many things. One kind of entrepreneur is uh, a woman who raises a lot of money, uses other people's money to build a business bigger than herself. This is the classic uh, industrial entrepreneur. But there's another kind of entrepreneur, which is the bootstrapping entrepreneur. This is someone who starts with no money and builds a business based on customers so eager for what the person is making that they pay in advance. That the more you please people, the more you get paid, which enables you to grow. And I have done both kinds of entrepreneurship, but I was a bootstrapper for a very long time. And as a bootstrapper, the challenge you always have is how do I grow this business without borrowing or selling equity? And one way you do it is by funding it yourself. One way you do it is by doing the hard work instead of hiring someone to do the hard work. And it's thrilling and invigorating, but you're always dancing close to whatever edge you draw. Because going to the edge is the way you get leverage. So in my case, uh, I was a book packager. The way book packaging works is you come up with an idea for a book, you sell it to a book publisher, and then you go make it. So it's a little like an author, but it's an author with a team. It's an author with brands. It's an author uh, creating books that are too complicated for a single person to make. So I was doing almanacs and test prep guides and business books and gardening books and illustrated books and young adult novels. And I, we did 120 books over the course of 10 years. And at many, many stages along the way, you're waiting and investing mm -hmm. in a project paying off. But while that's happening... You're funding it yourself. And so I knew I was dancing on the edge. I was dancing on the edge. I wouldn't say intentionally because I was waiting for the scale to kick in, but I was doing it uh, with purpose. And it, was, it took much longer than I had hoped to get away from that little tiny edge, uh, but I was glad that I did it. And what are the habits that you practice now to, to, to prevent you from going back to that Place. I mean, it sounds like you've, you've learned a tremendous amount from that experience. A lot of people on the show are always clinging on to learning about habits, good ones, bad ones, but especially the good ones that can keep our money and our business going in the direction that we wanted to. What were the habits that, that stem from that? Well, I would say a big one is that there's a difference between being a freelance and an entrepreneur. Uh, freelancers get paid when they work. Entrepreneurs build big, something bigger than themselves. And I've done both. And I discovered I generally prefer being a freelancer in the sense that um, if I do a piece of work, I did it. If my name is on it, it's my work, as opposed to building an institution that makes things. Mm -hmm. And as a result, uh, because I've gotten to the point where people pay me for my work, I'm not at the edge professionally because I couldn't, it wouldn't make sense to buy a building. It wouldn't make sense to hire 15 people to watch me do my job. But it was that choice of, you know, after building a couple internet companies, that choice of saying, I'd rather work with my hands and my fingers and my head than build an institution. But the other thing is that, and I've seen this happen to many people, is you succeed one week or one month or one year 
and you draw a bunch of dots and you connect them with a ruler and you assume it's going to keep going up and to the right. And so people adjust their, quote, needs about money around that. So they have two or three or four houses or a plane or uh, if it's less money than that, they have uh, plenty of credit cards and they're happy to use them and more cars than they need and everything else because that feels like the American dream. Mm -hmm. But what it really is is the marketer's dream. And there's plenty of evidence that shows that people who spend more money are not happier. Uh, people who give more money to charity are happier. And it would be interesting to experiment if you are fortunate enough to have cash flow to say, instead of going into $10,000 into debt, let me borrow the money and send $10,000 to charity water instead and see how that feels. Yes. A few words I've heard you say now on the show so far, and they're all kind of in the same boat. You, you've used the word choice, in, intention, purpose, all in this context of making your life better and taking control of your life. Is that to say that and that we actually have more control over our destiny than than we think sometimes? Because I think that many people, especially when it comes to money, they sometimes feel like they don't have a say, that the world is against them, that they don't have access to resources. They may have ideas, but they don't have the ability to implement them. What would you say to somebody who's in that mindset? Well, two parts to this answer. The first one is you have nailed it on the head. All of us have significantly more choice than we believe we do about money. All of us. And one thing, if this is something that's making you unhappy uh, to consider, is the idea of going on a radical money diet. Go on a fast. Do nothing but eat brown rice and black beans. That's $6 a day. Move in with a friend. Sleep on the floor. Walk to work. Figure out how to cut your expenses to $200, $300 a month. And what you will discover as a result of that process is that everything beyond that is a choice. And uh, you can say, it's a choice that I'm not willing to live without. That's fine. But that's a choice on your part. And I have seen countless people who are still in debt and are really unhappy about it, who aren't willing to, you know, turn off the internet in their home and just use the internet at the library, right? That's a thousand dollars. You know, you add it up and you add it up and you add it up. And when you dig deep, you realize there are people who make three or four or five dollars a day who are happier than you. And that's just true. So you got to decide what you're going to do with that fact. And then the second thing, which is inextricably linked to the first one, is that money is a story. Mm -hmm. Money is not real. Paper, little bits of paper are just believed by some people to be worth something in exchange. And as long as they believe them, they have value. But the story we tell ourselves about money is the single most important thing you need to diagnose if you are unhappy with the way you are treating and being treated by money. Maybe you have to change your story. One of the habits of living uh, a rich and meaningful life, I like to think, is establishing goals, right? And as you say, Seth, goals force us to think bigger, which is essential. But you've also said on your blog and in your interviews that we can sometimes mistake the goal for the destination. What did you mean by that? Okay, so I learned goal setting from my teacher, Zig Ziglar. And if someone is really uh, ready to take a step, I was lucky enough to, before he died, uh, work with him 
to update his goal planner. So you can find uh, that. It's not particularly expensive. But the idea is that writing down your goals and then every single day writing down what you have done to get toward achieving them is probably the single biggest change the average person can make in their life for the cost of a paper and pencil. That uh, we are afraid to do this. And then when we write down our goals, we usually write down the wrong goals. So learning how to actually articulate goals that will make you happy, which means not just money goals, but goals about relationships and goals about community and goals about fitness and goals about health. When you are clear about what you want, again, intentional, when you can undo stories that you have been accepting for a really long time and replace them with the truth about what will make you happy. You can start to rewire your story about money. And when you discover that uh, you are carrying around an impossible goal merely as a way to make yourself feel badly about money, you will be able to free yourself from that and instead replace it with a goal that you can actually work on that's actually achievable. And it's not lowering your standards, right, when you create a goal that is, quote-unquote, more achievable. Let's get that straight. Well, I hate the word standards here yeah. because that whose standards are these exactly? So let's say that you are 14 years old and you live in Omaha, Nebraska, and you have decided that your goal is to be uh, a TV star. Well, I would argue that if we took that apart mm. bit by bit, we would come to the conclusion that for almost everyone, that is a ridiculous goal because it is about being picked by someone else. It is about meeting someone else's standards. And after you've become a TV star, which is essentially impossible, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, you're more likely to play in the NBA than be a TV star. Uh, once you've done that, it's not clear at all that you are stable or happy going forward. Right. Mm -hmm. And so... It, it, are you lowering your standards if you go from I want to be a TV star to I want to be a really happy nursery school teacher? I don't think that's a lowering of standards. I think it's a raising of standards. Mm. Right, because you're ultimately happier. makes total sense. Thanks for putting that in perspective for us, Seth, because I think we can all get caught up on these ideas of standards and other people's expectations. And that ultimately is what ruins our story in, in many cases. Let's transition now to questions from listeners. We got a few really, really high-quality ones, and I would like to start with Karen. Karen, thanks for sending in your question. She asks, Seth, I know that uh, you mentioned in your own series on iTunes called Startup School, which everybody should check out, that he realized he liked being a freelancer more so than managing a business with 70 or so employees. Uh, you mentioned that you like working on different projects, where you had to contact X amount of people to earn a certain amount of money to maintain the lifestyle that you desired. She asks, Seth, how can people starting out truly do this? Do freelancers always have to pound the pavement or can your projects eventually build momentum and you can feel some sense of financial stability? And I think sometimes there's always a degree of, of, of uh, uh, what's the word, hustling. Um, but what, what would you say to Karen, Seth? Well, I'd start by saying it is easier now than ever to build a freelance career that's based on word of mouth, not based on direct selling. And the reason is because word of mouth spreads with way more impact and scale than it did uh, before the Internet. 
The, the second thing I would say is that if you are going to be an average freelancer doing average work for average clients, you will always be hustling. You will always be right on the edge of failure because clients are smart and they understand that if you're doing average work, they can probably find someone cheaper than you to do it. Mm -hmm. The hard part is to figure out how to be a freelancer who is one in a million, one and only, the only person. So that the person goes back to their boss and doesn't mm -hmm. say, I hired a freelance X to do this job. They say, I hired the Karen Finley to do this job. Because if you are the Karen Finley, the one and the only, you know, the NEA grant winner or whatever it is that you've done, there is no replacement. And people who want that have to get it from you. And Dane Sanders has written a fabulous book on this. If you are thinking of uh, expanding your work as a freelancer, I strongly recommend you read it. It's about being a wedding photographer, but you don't have to have anything to do with cameras to understand Dane's argument, which is that now that everyone has a camera, mm -hmm. you don't become a successful wedding photographer by taking pictures like everybody else. This is why I like reading your work, Seth. It's so inspirational because you actually um, say that you should believe more in yourself, that you should strive to be the best. And guess what? You can be the best. And I think uh, more of us need to feel that way. If, if more of us can only feel that way, I think the world would be a better place. We'd be happier. Alex asks, I would like to ask Seth Godin, how can a startup or small business develop sticky marketing campaigns with so much competition for attention and so many social media platforms? What do you think, Seth? I, well, my answer to that also segues into the last thing you just said. Uh, we all could be the best, but we probably won't. And the reason we probably won't is because we are afraid or lazy or brainwashed into thinking we can't. Uh, and the way we make a sticky marketing campaign is not by making a better marketing campaign. It's by making a better product. That there is a line out the door at uh, a coffee place right next to Chelsea Market that I travel by regularly. Why is there a line out the door? It's not because they have a clever typeface. It's not because they spent $10,000 on their logo. It's not because they do a good job on Twitter. There's a line out the door because they have done an insane, over-invested amount of effort on making a cup of coffee that people want to talk about with their friends. And that effort doesn't come natural to us. If we did stuff like that in high school, we were afraid that the cheerleaders would make fun of us. If we did stuff like that in college, we were afraid we wouldn't get a job at the placement office. If we did stuff like that at our first or second or third job, we were afraid that we would show up the boss. So that act of saying, I want to go to an extreme edge, to be a purple cow, to uh, dance right on the edge of ridiculous is really hard, which is why so few people do it, which is why it's valuable. A follow-up question to that, Seth, with book publishing. I'm an author, you're an author, and I think we can both say that there are a lot of fantastic authors out there with great proposals, great book ideas. They never get published, or if they do get published, their book never gets read. It never gets sold. I mean, that's why publishing houses are falling apart because they, you know, they take on all these authors and then ultimately they the books don't sell. And then you see another author whose idea isn't that great. Maybe it's a book about nothing especially cool or different 
and they become a New York Times bestseller. So what's happening there? I mean, what would you say to that struggling author who's saying, you know what, I had a great idea, it was, it was quality work, everyone who I know loved it, read it, but I just couldn't get to the tipping point where I was selling so many and then I became you know, even more successful and I actually paid my publisher back. Well, let's start by talking about what the word quality means. Um, quality doesn't mean good. Quality means it meets specifications. And the definition of a quality book, if the goal of the book is to be a bestseller, is that it sells a lot of copies. Uh, therefore, the book that is selling a lot of copies is better quality than yours because it met the specification of sells a lot of copies. Mm -hmm. So let's get rid of the word quality. It's okay. not useful here. Let's instead talk about the fact that um, if you or I were starting the book business today, it would be silly to go walk the streets of New York and say, I'm an unknown author with no following. Please pick me and make me famous. <laughs> Because they don't need to do that anymore. They're only going to publish aggressively people who already have a following. Why wouldn't they? And that means you have to do a couple things. One, find a following. Earn a following. Lead a group of people that can't wait to buy your next book. Two, understand that you do not have to wait for someone in New York who doesn't get the joke to decide to publish your book. Because in fact... Book publishers think that their customers are bookstores. That's who they publish for. And bookstores are the people who sell books, except that bookstores don't sell books anymore. They sell bookmarks. Um, mm -hmm. And Amazon and the Kindle and other places sell books. So do it yourself. Yeah. Figure out how to find 1,000 people who will pay you for your next book or 10,000 people or five people. And if your book is, quote, quality, and by definition that means someone tells someone else, then someone will tell someone else. And my best advice for authors, and people who are authors can uh, Google advice for authors, and I've written two blog posts about this. My best advice for authors, other than building a following, is particularly if you're a novelist, take your book, make it into a PDF that's fairly pretty. If you don't know how to do that, ask a Mac person, and then e email that book for free to 30 friends. If it's good, they'll each send it to 10 people. And if it's good, it will spread. And if it spreads, there will be a line out the door to buy your next book. And if it doesn't spread, well, then it wasn't the book it could have been. Write a new book. All right, let's move on to our next question, Seth. Uh, we have one from, I want to get her name right, from Kari. She says, with respect to your new book, What to Do When It's Your Turn, how can I take my turn? and fully invest my time and my money into taking my turn when I still have a mountain of debt and completing my MBA and I'm still paying undergraduate loans. She says she wants to take her turn and create something immediately after completing her master's, but she thinks that she's going to have to get that industrial job in order to make ends meet. Um, is she just self-limiting herself with this sort of story as we've been talking about, Seth, this kind of story about you know, what our limitations are, or unfortunately, is this the reality for her? Well, here's the good news is uh, that she, like so many of us, are seeing what's possible. The challenge here is this. We need to strike words like completely. I want to completely uh, take my turn. No, why don't you just take your turn for five minutes a day? 
why don't you just, in the smallest possible way, find a human being who has a problem that you can solve that they're happy to pay you money to solve? Maybe once a week you find somebody uh, who has an attic full of junk, find uh, a silver collection or an antique, sell it on eBay and split the money with them. Maybe once a week you uh, coach someone or tutor someone or create a, 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 an infographic or some uh, sort of digital artifact that people are eager to purchase from you. That There is no completion here. There's no home run. The goal is how often can you get on base? And if you don't actually need the cash today, even better, because then you can blog every single day. Mm-hmm. Or you can have a podcast. Because what happens is when you show up with generosity and say, here, I made this. Here, let's do this. Look at what these people are doing. Look at what these people are doing. When you do this regularly, when you feed the community, that's when you really get the chance to take your turn. That the farther off you can postpone the now I want you to pay me part of the show, the more likely it is that the community around you trusts you. Right. And it's trust that we build our communities on. It's trust that makes your life worth living as a professional. And it takes momentum. I think also from what I can sense from her question is that she feels like she's got to finish her MBA and then start the idea. And it's sort of like she's still thinking of life as these like finite stages. Whereas what I think you're saying is that take advantage of the fact that, you know, you're perhaps still in school, but you have time and resources to start that blog, to get on those bases, to start building that momentum, to get that following, um, so that when you start to go out really with a bang, that you know you, you've got history, you've got you've got experience, and you have a, that community perhaps that can support you. That's right. And you know, if you just turn off the television, uh, it seems to me that almost everyone will free up between thirty minutes <laughs> and three hours a day. I haven't watched broadcast television since Seinfeld went off the air, oh and it gosh. seems to have paid off. Well, maybe you should watch Curb Your Enthusiasm because it's pretty, pretty good uh, follow-up to, to Seinfeld. Um, Larry David's uh, still got it. Well, Seth, thank you so much. And tell us how we can uh, get a, a copy and several copies of What to Do When It's Your Turn. Uh, if you visit yourturn.link, you can see a little video and uh, read all about it. And I hope that the book uh, will resonate with you the way it's resonated with other people. It's uh, It was fun to make, and I'm thrilled to see it's having uh, an impact on the community. And this is our last question, Seth. I think uh, you've spent a lot of generous time with us. I have one last question that I think is a nice one to end on. Tali asks, Seth, how did you gain the freedom to express who you are and and do what you're passionate about? It sounds to me like she's a little concerned about maybe finding the confidence to do the same. She also wants to know, at what point did you realize that social norms are BS? At the same time, I found the freedom. Uh, you know, I had the same freedom of everybody else. I was a, uh, my English teacher wrote in my high school yearbook that I was never going to amount to anything. Oh. Um, and I got to college. College is a great place to start a business because no one's counting on you to pay the rent. And uh, co-founded a company there uh, and started one project after another project after another project. I had the same freedom of every other student, but they didn't do that, and I did. Um, And that's because I had the freedom to fail, and I realized it, and they didn't. And ever since then, my mission 
has been to fail more than anyone else. I figure if I fail more than anyone else, I learn more, I touch more people, I figure things out, and I get to keep playing the game. Mm-hmm. And that's not freedom from the outside. That's freedom in my head. And I've been trying to share that idea for 20 years, and I'm thrilled that some people are getting the message. Well, I'm thrilled that you were here with us. People are going to love this interview. Um, we all have our homework now. We're going to hopefully start writing down our goals, start facing our fears. Seth Godin, thank you so much for being raw and candid and honest and inspiring mostly for me and for our listeners. I hope you have a great new year. Well, thank you so much. Probably my favorite interview to date. Thank you to Seth Godin for spending time with us. And thank you for sending in your questions. If you'd like to learn more about Seth, do check out his blog, sethgodin.com. Again, his newest book is called What to Do When It's Your Turn, and it's available at yourturn.link. And remember, if you want the transcript for this interview or to leave a comment for this interview, please go to somoneypodcast.com. It's also there where you can ask me a question. And of course, the weekends on So Money are dedicated to you, answering your questions, addressing your feedback, and engaging more with you. So please go to somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh, and ask me a question about personal finance, money, career, entrepreneurship, a guest, my podcast. No question is a bad question. I love to hear from all of you. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you learn a lot from this interview. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow. And most of all, I hope your day is so money. <laughs>